Ronzani here from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Once again, my guest is Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, ahead of the Brandenburg's upcoming concert series, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. We're here to talk about program music and its development in the Western musical tradition, including Telemann's Water Music and Vivaldi's picturesque Four Seasons. Lovely to have you with me today, Alan. Hi, Hugh. Nice to be here. I wanted to uh, delve into a, a topic today that um, really is actually quite close to uh, my heart. As a composer, I, I feel that any music I write has some sort of uh, almost programmatic element to it. I'm writing music for to be enjoyed by a live audience most of the the, the time, and um, and I can't help myself but um, but uh, imagine certain images or pictures uh, as I'm writing. And certainly in this program, we have a lot of music that would be deemed to be programmatic. Yeah, uh, in the sense of telling a story, and that um, that telling a story element, I think, is what sets it apart. That makes it different from most music of this period, where. Uh, it's always, in a sense, about something. The music of the Baroque period, I think, is always it's for a particular purpose. It's always written for a particular occasion, for particular performers, and it's trying to convey a particular uh, emotion or sentiment at the very least. But the idea of actually telling a story is um, and depicting a very specific scene in instrumental music is something that's unusual. And so, these so particular pieces we've got in this program are, are outstanding examples of that. Of telling stories. So is this the fundamental difference between when people talk about program music and music that they don't talk about being program music, is that the difference? Is it the composer trying to tell us a story within the context of program music, so-called, and in, in the context of other music, not so, so much the case? Yeah, and we could probably draw a little bit of a distinction as well between music that's really programmatic in the sense of actually having a narrative to it, uh, as opposed to music that paints a scene, I suppose. And in a sense, uh, the, the Telemann water music that we've got today, uh, and also the Four Seasons, um, they're not exactly telling a story in the sense that we don't kind of follow the character's uh, kind of lives and see what happens to them mm. exactly. There's no uh, chronology. But, yeah, that's right. But they do paint quite specific scenes and uh, the and we have text descriptions that go with them to some extent to, to cue us to what it is that we're listening for. And when we do, then we kind of hear uh, a series of scenes which in a sense build up a story, even if it's not an actual kind of narrative that runs through the whole thing. Now, Vivaldi's Four Seasons uh, were, of course, written uh, ahead of Telemann's Water Music. Um, but were there any other examples examples um, but that came before Vivaldi in terms of this sort of style of setting a, a, a scene um, in, in, in a musical way? Are there any uh, examples that spring to mind um, within earlier uh, Baroque um, repertoire or, or even music earlier than that for you, Alan? Uh, yeah, there's a long tradition, of course, of uh, depicting uh, things in music, of trying to conjure up a scene, uh, originally in vocal music above all, where you've got words that tell you what's going on, and so the music from the 16th century on particularly uh, composers start trying to make the music really sound like the thing that's being expressed in the words and uh, so that's absolutely standard in Italian madrigals and so forth from the 16th century but we also have some outstanding examples where composers set out not only to kind of create the mood and so forth but to actually depict the scene with uh, with 
special sounds and noises that uh, that conjure it up. Yes, you, you mentioned uh, Bieber earlier uh, uh, when we were just chatting before, and um, and the animal sonata. Yeah, well, even before that, in the uh, if you go back to the 16th century, there are some wonderful chansons by people like uh, Claude de Saint Lucy, um, who uh, wrote, uh, and, and uh, Clément Janequin, who wrote a series of. Um, wonderful pieces. They sound to us kind of like madrigals, but they're they're French chansons, um, which depict particular scenes. Like there's one about a battle, the Battle of Morignon, in which we actually hear the uh, the sound of the guns and clashing swords and all of that. And all of that is made by the voices of the singers. There's no mm. instruments in it at all. But uh, he builds into the sound of the words and the, the shapes of the, the lines and the harmonies and so forth, uh, all of that uh, depiction of, of what's going on in the battle. And he has another one which is called the song of the birds in which the the, the singers imitate bird calls uh and all of that's kind of built into the music. So there's that kind of tradition. And we hear some of that kind of thing picked up in Bieber. Uh, he, one of his patrons was very keen on this kind of music that, that sort of paints a picture. And uh, so he wrote a violin sonata called the Sonata Representativa, the representational or kind of uh, depicting mm. <laughs> sonata, uh, which is full of fantastic animal noises. It's very clever. And uh, some of them are bird sounds, but some of it, there's also uh, a cat meowing and... <laughs> Uh, uh, and uh, a, a hen and rooster kind of uh, cackling and so forth. It's a very clever, very funny piece. Um, but also uh, probably one that people are, are most likely to have heard is uh, called the, the, the Battle. And again, it's a piece which depicts scenes of not only of, of the actual fighting, but of the soldiers sitting around in camp beforehand, uh, singing drunkenly together and so forth. And again, a very clever uh, representational piece, which is supposed to be entertaining. Now, um, we have a lot of different titles for different pieces of music and, and uh, it's in a way a, a source of categorization trying to be able to figure out well what should we call this oh well it's this sort of piece so we should call it that when you talk about an overture in the context of Telemann's time and what Telemann was writing um, uh, what what is an overture because yeah. I mean the the title that I have um, for this uh, piece that we're going to hear in the program um, Vivaldi's Four Seasons is just overture in C. Uh, to the Telemann. To the uh, Telemann, water music, yes, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes you said Vivaldi Four Seasons. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, but Vivaldi Four Seasons is the name of the um, concert program. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry, it gets very confusing, doesn't it? <laughs> Boy, I thought we had enough confusion with the uh, the terminology. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> overture is, is one of the most confusing terms during this period just because the word is used to mean several different things. Um, it's a French word, of course, originally, and so it describes what we now think of as an overture. That is uh, a piece that's played before the start of an opera or a ballet or something like that. It's when the, you mean now, uh, going back to what uh, what time did that sort of usage? Oh, uh, through the 19th and 20th centuries, okay, yes. so kind of standard usage now. We go to see an opera, and the first thing you hear is, is the an instrumental piece before the singers begin, and that's the overture. Mm. Um, it comes from the late 17th century, uh, music around the court of Louis XIV, uh, where we get the, uh, 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 the operas of Lully particularly, and they're always introduced by an overture 
which ha uh, had a particular kind of format, which was very recognisable as being a French overture to a French opera or ballet. And that comes in two sections, a slow, majestic uh, opening section with uh, strongly dotted rhythms, and then a second section which is fast and fugal with the parts imitating each other. And to people at the time, that was very recognisable as being a French overture. And did it set the scene? Uh, did it uh, have specific themes, is, is, I suppose, what I'm trying to drive at? Like nowadays we see in, uh, in mo more modern operas uh, with, uh, with essentially uh, thematic material being used in the overture to be able to then uh, whet the appetite of the audience mm. going, going through? Uh, no, normally you wouldn't get actual musical themes uh, kind of um, presaged in the, the overture and then returning later on. It's more about setting the scene more generally. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the court of Louis XIV, probably what happened was that the king actually made an entry to the theatre during the overture. So in a sense, it was as much about framing the piece with the uh, the glory of the king's presence and so forth. Mm. Even if the king wasn't there, it still gives the same kind of impression of setting the scene uh, and getting us into the mood for the piece, but the actual musical themes are not likely to be picked up later on. So it's a kind of preparatory piece. Mm. Okay, so that's what people understood initially an overture to be. And, However, and we talk about that nowadays as being a French overture. That's right, exactly. because it was developed in France exactly. and had a distinctively yeah. French sound. Uh, but the, that kind of overture was also used not just to introduce an opera, but also to introduce a larger instrumental piece, which would have a series of movements. So not just those two kind of standard sections, slow and fast, but then a series of dance movements afterwards. So not necessarily to actually dance to, but in using the form of typical French dancers of the time, like the uh, Allemand, Saraband, Jig and so forth, these standard dancers that were that made up uh, instrumental suites. Uh, some people probably know uh, keyboard suites of that kind that were written by J.S. Bach and other composers of that period. Mm. Uh, what often happened, though, was that you would introduce your suite of, of dance pieces with a French overture style piece and the whole thing was often just called overture so that um, this is now sometimes called an overture suite mm. so it starts with your French overture but instead of being the beginning of an opera or something it goes on to a, uh, a longer instrumental piece made up of a series of dance forms. And hence the discrepancy between how uh, this particular work of Telemann's is titled. Sometimes it's written as Overture, other times you see it as Overture Suite, um, and then other times it's given a more programmatic title, um, Hamburger Ebenflut, and uh, you, you know, sometimes water music as well. Yeah. Uh, and this is a particularly interesting case because there are actually eight surviving manuscripts for this piece, which is a, a large number. So it was never printed, and that was typical of the time. Most music was not printed. It, it was preserved only in manuscript. But most pieces didn't get that many performances, and so uh, you tend to have only one or two copies of the manuscript, whereas this one has eight copies, which suggests that it was performed relatively often mm. um, and uh, they all have different titles <laughs> so that suggests that Telemann himself probably didn't give it a title the title would would have been added by whoever was writing out the the copy of the piece um, 
they uh, they probably I suspect what happened was that they derived uh, a title for the whole piece from the titles of the individual movements, which we do have. Um, there's also a report uh, from when the piece was performed, and there's a, a famous occasion we know of when it was performed uh, in Hamburg uh, for the centenary of the Hamburg Admiralty. Now, Hamburg was a trading city. It made its wealth from uh, shipping, from from trade on the the North Sea. And uh, it was also a free city in that it didn't have its uh, local aristocracy. There was no prince who ruled over it. It was a commercial centre. And so the Admiralty was really important because they looked after all the shipping and uh, running a kind of navy to protect them from piracy. So this was a big deal. And Mm. uh, it also explains why water features so much in the uh, kind of imagery associated with Hamburg and why the piece has so much to do with water. Have you been to Hamburg yourself? I haven't, no. It's uh, one of those things I need to get around to. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I can imagine, uh, as I, say, I haven't been there myself either, but the, the way that this piece is written and the reverence it has, obviously, to water and, and everything uh, affiliated, the gods affiliated with, the, with, with water as, as well, um, it must have been a, a hugely important part of, of life in, in, in the city. Certainly was, and certainly still is, because mm. remember Germany doesn't have very much sea coast, and so most of the uh, seaborne trade uh, has to go through these few ports that that actually have major um, harbours. And Hamburg is certainly one of them, probably the most important port for seaborne trade even today. Obviously, uh, uh, there there was more patronage for composers in in um, uh, either churches or, or, or courts. But Telemann uh, was actually quite closely linked uh, with, with amateur musicians uh, too, was, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And part of that, I think, has to do with be, being in a city like Hamburg, kind of encouraged him, I think, to be entrepreneurial. And part of that was to write music that uh, he enjoyed to write, I think, and which was aimed at an amateur market. It's a time also where there's a rising middle class, and particularly in a a trading city like Hamburg, there are wealthy merchants and um, kind of middle class artisan uh, kind of class uh, people who are aspiring to be more cultured, and part of that is to study music. And in Hamburg uh, itself, uh, were there other composers that preceded uh, Telemann and this market, or or did he really cultivate this market um, himself with his sheer output of, 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 of music? Uh, he certainly developed this um, in a way that I don't think anybody else had before that time. Uh, he was producing so much and distributing it in in kind of innovative ways. He issued things that were in in series, so you would uh, you would subscribe and and get the next one this in you know, so a month's modern. time. And, and so <laughs> yeah, and in some respects, it is uh, a real uh, kind of introduction of the, of a modern economy of of music, I suppose, and a kind of industrial system almost, uh, in which he he gets people engaged in the way that you know a century later people would uh, would subscribe to Charles Dickens' books coming out with, you know, chapter by chapter in, in subsequent issues of a journal and that mm. kind of thing. There's a kind of element of that. But built into that also, Telemann puts in uh, stuff that's kind of music education. You can buy these publications and they will give you an explanation of how to how to play the piece, uh, of how to do the ornamentation and things like that. So they're also very useful to us historically in, in understanding how he expected the music to be played as well as to have the actual 
little notes on the page. And and these uh, sources, do they survive today? Obviously, um, would, would they be something that uh, performers um, wanting to create a, an authentic uh, performance of the, the water music, for example, would, would look to in terms of learning about the ornamentation and what sort of performance uh, elements need to be uh, need to be observed? Yeah, uh, from this period, particularly the first half of the 18th century, we start increasingly to get um, treatises in which musicians explain how to play in a particular way. And that, again, is a reflection of this growing amateur market. Um, there are also publications, particularly by French composers, where they have a kind of introduction to the score of the piece, where they'll be a couple of pages at the beginning with an explanation of the ornament symbols and how to play them. So it'll say, when you see this little mark above a note in the score, it means you play a trill or you play a mordant, da 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 or whatever the pattern is, mm. um, uh, so that you can play with lots of uh, really expressive, interesting ornamentation without the score becoming cluttered with endless little tiny notes that you have to try and figure out where they fit. You just get to know what the symbol is and then you can put in all the ornaments in the appropriate places. So Telemann's publications include some of that kind of explanation as well. And this for me um, is uh, the the way that I delineate anyway the importance uh, between the line uh, and then ornamentation of that musical line. Exactly. The, the most important important element and one that even a, an amateur musician will be able to enjoy are the, the sequence of notes that, that create that melody. But then on top of that, as we get more and more virtuosic interpretations of that melody, you then get um, ornamentation that, uh, that, 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 that you're talking about. Yeah, and part of the skill of professional players was that they were trained to know where to put in their own ornamentation. So they didn't need it written on the score. In fact, it was almost uh, a kind of insult to the performer, to a professional performer, to write in all the ornamentation because it was, uh, as uh, Torsi, the, French, the Italian uh, writer on singing, said, uh, do you think we singers are so stupid that we don't know where the appoggiaturas go? You know, you don't write them in, we know where they go. Mm. Um, but for amateur musicians, it's kind of the opposite. You can't be expected to know how to, to do everything in the most sophisticated courtly style. It's very helpful to have the composer actually tell you where those ornaments go. But or as you say, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And, and that's exactly right. That uh, So that if you're or uh, just learning the piece, if you're not very advanced in technical uh, command of your instrument, then you can just play the plain notes as they're written and the piece works perfectly well. But as you get more advanced, you can put in the ornamentation to the extent that you're comfortable to do that and it makes it that much more expressive, that much more kind of sophisticated in sound. Mm. Uh, so it gives you kind of levels built into the, the structure of the music that allow you to, to kind of develop to make it more elaborate as you get more used to it and as you get technically more in command. We have two pieces by Telemann on, on, on the program. Um, mm. uh, we have, first of all, uh, to start the, uh, the program, his Concerto in G major for four violins and no uh, continuo. And then we have the, the water music after, after that. In, ter in terms of the amateur musicians and that market that we've been talking about, is something like uh, the, 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 the smaller scale of the Concerto for four violins going to be more approachable for those musicians uh, too uh, rather than the the water music which obviously involves a much larger orchestra uh, it's certainly more approachable in terms of only needing four players but whether that kind of piece was aimed at the amateur market is a slightly different question uh, this is probably a good example of music that is 
for small forces. It only needs four players, but it's quite complicated and technically challenging uh, and difficult to get it together. Uh, it's a very unusual piece. Um, because it's called a concerto, we think of it as the sort of piece that ought to have an orchestra accompanying it in the way that, say, Vivaldi's famous concertos for four violins uh, in the Lester Armonico set mm. uh, do. But it's not that kind of piece. And it doesn't follow the same pattern, or the same structure that Vivaldi's concertos do either, does it? That's right. Uh, Vivaldi, this, so we don't know exactly when this concerto, the Telemann uh, concerto for four violins was written, but it's probably somewhere in the the uh, latter part of the 1710s um, and that's a period when Vivaldi's concertos were starting to be known in northern Europe and when J.S. Bach got hold of them and arranged some of them and, and so on. So Telemann was probably aware of this new Vivaldian kind of model but he doesn't follow it in this kind of piece. So Vivaldi's standard model of course is three movements, fast, slow, fast and the outer movements and particularly the first movement typically in uh, what was called ritornello form, where you get an alter alternating kind of, almost like a chorus played by the orchestra with um, solos by the solo violin, not typically in between. Um, Telemann doesn't do that in this piece. And in fact, it's probably an example, or at least it's closer to an older Italian model, which is not for one or more solo instruments with accompaniment. Instead, it's for a group of pieces with, of instruments with no soloist. But what makes this piece stand out, and that there are three of them in this little set that uh, Telemann wrote, is that the four instruments are all equal voices, where typically you would have a kind of string quartet kind of layout of maybe two or three violins, a viola and uh, bass. Here, there's no bass instrument at all, so there's no harpsichord, no cello, it's just the four violins. And that is a particular kind of compositional challenge, as I, mm. I guess you uh, would uh, know as a composer. When you've got four instruments exactly the same, how do you make the piece kind of interesting, varied, and make it kind of work And here, here for me, it's the, the rhythmic uh, material that he, he, he establishes uh -huh. in the very, at the very start of the piece, which uh, allows us to have some sort of um, almost metronome in the back of our ears that even when it's not being played, these crotchets keep coming back and, and provide stability and, and mm. harmonic stability for the ear to then follow the, the rest of the material and, and allow for all of the wonderful um, uh, music to follow. Yeah, I, I think in a way what he does is to find a different solution in each movement mm. for how to, to manage this thing of having the four equal violins. And so in the first movement they just play these slow chords that mm. drop one after the other and over the top of that the first violin plays a beautiful melody and that melody is then passed around amongst the other violins. Um, then the second movement is, is a fast movement which is a complicated fugue. Now uh, just goes to show Bach is not the only one who writes fugues during this period. Everybody's doing it, and Telemann was really good. Uh, and uh, so he can uh, mix the, the four violins in together with imitation. So each one comes in with the same melody, copying the, the voice that's come before. Mm. But usually you would do this again with a, a, a range of instruments or, say, an instrument like the, the organ in which you can play high and low voices. And so the, the melody will be passed typically from high 
to low, from the soprano to the alto to the tenor to the bass, uh, which gives you kind of contrast and allows you to fill out the harmony. But very clever to do this with the four violins, which, of course, have a wide range. The exactly, violin... and he exploits the different uh, voices uh, within the range of the, the violin. The, the, obviously, we have a, a, a vastly different sound almost between the bottom of the instrument and the lower strings as opposed to the, the upper strings. That's right, yeah. Uh, and he certainly um, uses all of that, that possibility. In the, the third movement, though, uh, I think one, what's really clever about this is it's very short, but it is uh, one of those remarkably um, dense, uh, mysterious pieces where the harmony just keeps leading you on and you can't tell exactly where it's going. Mm. Uh, rather like some of uh, Vivaldi's um, really nice short slow movements, but it's kind of close harmony. It also, almost has a sort of barbershop kind of <laughs> yeah. feel to it, both the four violins. And then in the fourth movement, that thing about the, the sonority of the, the different strings of the violin, he really plays with because uh, it's an imitation of hunting horns. Mm. And uh, so he uses the open strings of the violin to create that kind of resonance that you get with natural horns, which is all about the harmonic series, the, the natural harmonics of the note. And the violin played on open strings resonates uh, in a way that, that creates that kind of sense of the, the natural harmonics of the, of the sound. And that kind of makes sense because the hunting horns, of course, play all in the same register. And so what makes it interesting is the horn calls and the imitation uh, passing the horn call back from one instrument to another and so on. And this is definitely a piece um, I, that I, I didn't know it myself um, before starting research into this program, but uh, I would suggest this to, to compositional students if they're wanting to learn about uh, the use of uh, the register of an instrument mm. and, and the different sonorities mm. that are possible. You don't necessarily need to get into extended techniques to be able to e exploit some fantastically uh, diverse sounds. Yeah, and in this period, the the uh, natural harmonics of open strings on the violin were, and on string instruments generally, were considered really an, a really important resource. Nowadays, we tend to play string instruments as far as possible, avoiding the open strings for the most part, uh, because it gives a more consistent sound. If you're playing uh, all of the notes with the fingers down, then they all sound more or less similar, and mm. so it gives a consistency throughout the instrument. Whereas at the time, they really valued the sound of open strings for that resonance. And in fact, um, uh, Mozart's father, Leopold Mozart, who wrote the, uh, the major book on violin playing in the middle of the 18th century, he says that you should uh, play on the open strings wherever possible in order to get this kind of resonance. And then in fact, one of the reasons for playing, if you do use any vibrato, which was a, a kind of a special effect rather than a thing you do all the time, one of the reasons for that was to kind of recreate that sense of the resonance you get from an open string. Mm. So when you have the finger pressed down and you wobble it slightly, it creates that kind of uh, uh, bloom on the sound that you get from an open string. Indeed, but it, it has a little bit more control to it than sometimes the open string um, uh, may have. But the uh, the, the interesting thing uh, for, for me, uh, coming back to obviously how Telemann has, has written uh, this particular piece, um, is that uh, clearly uh, on the instruments that our violinists are going to be uh, using to perform it, it will sound vastly different to, to how it would sound on, on modern instruments. Uh, yeah, that's right. And it's probably, when you hear the four violins like this not accompanied by any other instrument it's a lovely opportunity to really get a sense of that uh the, the special grainy earthy mm. um resonant kind of sound you get from playing on gut strings with baroque bows and and on the uh, instrument set up in the baroque 
manner. So talking about the difference between music said to be programmatic and music which isn't programmatic, we've spoken about uh, either setting a scene or telling a story, the idea of narrative. Uh, the, the concerto for four violins, is there a narrative or some sort of scene that one can derive from this piece or is it just a piece of music? Uh, I think it's probably composed just as a piece of music, but I guess it's a nice example of how even in a piece which is essentially just uh, an instrumental piece for listening to, um, it's always in a sense about something. And uh, so people listening at the time would have heard the slow movement with its um, kind of mysterious harmonies and so forth. It would conjure up some kind of a scene because that's the kind of music you would get, for example, in an opera where you have uh, a, a, um, a spirit appearing or somebody asleep or something like that. It conjures up that atmosphere of mystery. So it doesn't necessarily represent a particular scene but it gives us a mood at least so to that extent uh, so there's probably a distinction between that kind of thing which just kind of refers generally to a sound that people would associate with a particular kind of mood or a particular kind of scene mm. that's very typical and you get that quite a lot in in music of this period what's less common is the sort of thing that fairly specifically either tells us a story or depicts a, a quite definite scene and of the kind that we get in the the, uh, the Four Seasons. water music and in the, the Four Seasons. Um, now, coming uh, to, obviously, the Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Now, this is an establishment of establishments. It really is uh, a work that I think... Uh, most people in the Western world uh, immediately, or well, certainly parts of it, immediately recognise. And, uh, and uh, why is this piece uh, the one that is known as Vivaldi's uh, greatest work? Well, uh, mostly just because it's, been, it's so famous and has been uh, performed and recorded so often. Uh, it is, though, uh, one of those interesting examples where we think of it now as an absolute classic and the most famous piece by Vivaldi, probably one of the absolute uh, classics of the, the period, up there with Handel's Messiah, maybe, I don't know, Corelli's Christmas Concerto, people would know, um, J.S. Bach's St. Matthew Passion. These are the very famous pieces of the early 18th century and absolutely, for most people, the Four Seasons is right up there. Mm. But... Um, it uh, is not a, a classic in the sense of having been known and famous through all the period since then. It's, along with the rest of Vivaldi's music, has actually had to be rediscovered. And it's only in the last, well, I guess now the best part of 50 years that it's become really popular and well-known. Rediscovered? It, it, was it lost at, at some point or just fell out of interest? Yeah, um, Vivaldi, like uh, pretty much all the composers of his generation, uh, was writing music which was directed particularly to the audience at the time. It was fashionable, and music in uh, and fashions in music changed pretty rapidly. If you compare, think about the difference between the style of music of somebody like Vivaldi and that of Mozart. Mm. Um, when you hear them side by side. Mm. Uh, if you know that, that kind of music at all, it's pretty easy to pick which is which. You wouldn't mistake, say, uh, Mozart's um, G minor symphony, da-da-lum, da-da-lum, da-da-la-dum, that with the Four Seasons or a Vivaldi piece. The style is quite different, and yet they're not far apart chronologically. They're, they're only 50 years apart uh, or so. And uh, so style is changing really quickly. And by the time you get up to listening to the music in the style of Haydn or Mozart or even Beethoven, uh, the, the style of somebody like Vivaldi sounds very old-fashioned. 
Um, now we like it because it's old, but at the time it would simply have been uh, not kind of uh, um, interesting because it was ancient, but just out of fashion. Mm. Uh, and for that kind of reason, um, pretty much all of the music of that generation had disappeared out of the repertoire within 50 years or so. When we were talking about previously about evoking uh, scenes or images, uh, how does this piece uh, go about doing that? And do we know a little bit about the um, uh, the way that Vivaldi was writing this piece? I, I've heard of uh, the, the sonnets uh, for the, the Four Seasons, and I, I, I can't recite them to you, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how Vivaldi was inspired by both poetry and, and, um, and these scenes. Yeah, this is a, a thing which um, lots of listeners don't know about, which is that uh, uh, the pieces are so well known and uh, the kind of associations with the, the seasons generally are pretty obvious because the, the individual concertos so, are, are titled one for each season. So uh, each uh, season has its own whole concerto, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Um, and uh, a lot of people are aware of those titles. But what people often don't know is that there, there is this set of sonnets that go with them, which actually explain what's going on and make it much more programmatic than just this is about spring. It actually tells us what's going on in spring. Now, it's not entirely clear where these poems came from or who wrote them. They may even have been written by Vivaldi himself. It's also not entirely clear whether the poems came first or the music came first and, and he kind of created the poetry to, uh, to match what he imagined was going on in the scene. Do but certainly if... they do give us a, a real picture of what's happening. So do we know if Vivaldi was working with uh, other artists uh, at the time or, or where, he, where he was when he was writing uh, these works? Well, they're written at a time when he uh, had a job at the court of Mantua, though whether they are particularly associated with Mantua or describing scenes to do with Mantua is unclear. It may just as well be to do with uh, his upbringing in Venice. Uh, Venice, of course, um, doesn't have the pleasant flowery meadows and so forth that are described in the poems because it's just the islands. Mm. The city of Venice uh, is, though it controlled a lot of territory around and no doubt uh, Vivaldi, like other musicians, would have gone and worked at the, the summer uh, villas of the aristocracy and, and so forth when they went uh, onto the mainland. So I guess he was you know, familiar with all that kind and, of scene And you've spent well. time in, in Venice, haven't you, Alan? I have, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's tough, but somebody He's got to do it. <laughs> now, in terms of the sonnets and the imagery, uh, it goes much further than just being uh, a simple sonnet delivered um, uh, to the audience or to performers ahead of each of the concertos. Vivaldi has indeed inserted comments uh, uh, throughout the score, hasn't he? He has, yeah. So uh, he he does it very cleverly so that there are the sonnets... Uh, you can read as an individual poem that goes with each movement of each concerto. But he's also, in a printed edition of the score, he's actually written in the relevant lines on the music so that you can see exactly which passage, which bars refer to which particular line of the poem. And in addition to that, there are also some uh, kind of explanatory annotations. So uh, I'll just... Uh, in the find an example in the spring concerto, for instance. So right at the beginning in the spring concerto, we have the poetry that, that the poem says, Spring has arrived and festively the birds salute her with happy song. 
and meanwhile the, the fountains at the breath of the breezes flow with a sweet murmur. So in that passage, uh, he's written in above the notes of the, the score. Uh, at the beginning, it says, Spring has arrived, and festively the birds salute her with happy song. And he writes above the music, The Song of the Birds, so that right. we know exactly which bit in the solo violin part is depicting the sound of the and birds. And are there examples for you that are more iconic than others in terms of uh, any of the four concertos? What, what are the, the most <laughs> iconic moments in, in, in the, the, the whole um, set? Well, apart from that bird song, a couple of my favourite ones are um, in the, the slow movement of spring, the next movement. Uh, we, it's very clever because he actually allocates um, a voice to each of the instruments. So uh, the poem for that movement says, And later in the pleasant flowery meadow, to the welcome murmurs of branches and leaves, the goat herd sleeps with his faithful dog beside him. Okay, so we've got the pleasant flowery meadow. Yep the welcome murmurs of branches and leaves, the goat herd sleeping, and the faithful dog beside him. And each of those is allocated to a particular instrument. So above the first and second violins of the orchestra, we have rustle of branches and, and uh, plants. Mm-hmm. So we can hear them going, which is the, the leaves. Uh, the, um, the goat herd sleeping is played by the solo violin. So we hear the melody of him kind of, uh, you can just imagine him breathing. leaning against a tree and br- you can hear him breathing. Uh, and the viola part is marked, um, the dog barks. And then he's got an annotation saying, this must be played very loudly and raspingly throughout. <laughs> and, now, and, it's, and the viola just has this bop, 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 bop. And when you hear that played, now this is one of the ones where if you don't know what it's about, it completely goes for nothing. Um, and in a lot of the kinds of early recordings we got of this uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, when this kind of music was sort of as being very kind of beautiful and sort of chocolate boxy and so forth. Uh, and they play it very smoothly so that the violas just go, ba, 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 ba. You'd have no idea a that it was supposed dog. to be a barking dog. The dog <laughs> appears to be completely asleep as well. But uh, there are some wonderful recordings, like uh, one by Il Giardino Armonico, the uh, Italian Baroque uh, group, in which they really go for it. And the, uh, the viola has tremendous fun playing this barking sound um, so much so that it's almost kind of out of tune and you don't care if you know that it's the dog it just makes it very entertaining let's hear elizabeth wallfish with the australian brandenburg orchestra and the second movement from spring
So we have obviously the slow movement in in, um, uh, in spring, but um, but are there are there any other uh, favourites of uh, of yours uh, apart from apart from that? Oh yeah, well we get uh, in summer we get the uh, the cuckoo and the turtle dove, so they're they're kind of bird songs to listen out for. Uh, one of the most exciting bits is the winter concerto. Uh, the slipping and sliding is very cleverly done. Uh, we get frozen shivering amid icy snows at the cutting breath of the dreadful wind to run stamping one's feet at every moment uh, and the overwhelming frost causing, causing teeth to chatter. Mm. So you can actually hear the teeth chattering. And indeed, in terms of recordings, um, back in uh, 1997 uh, with Elizabeth Warfish, we recorded the, the Brandenburg uh, uh, Vivaldi Four Seasons and uh, a couple of other concertos, the Grosso Mogul and the Cuckoo, were also on that album. But uh, we hear that, just that sort of chattering and the attention to detail mm. in terms of recreating those sounds. Um, I think it's fantastic on that recording. Yeah. Let's listen to Elizabeth Wallfish again and some of those chattering teeth.
Well, thank you very much, Alan. It's been fabulous talking with you again, and I really am looking forward to this uh, next concert series. It's it's full of uh, fantastic music that evokes so much imagery and, and uh, so many different um, ideas. Yeah, thank, uh, thanks, you. It's always a, a joy to <laughs> talk about this repertoire, and uh, yeah, this is going to be a really special concert with not only the uh, really familiar music of, of the Four Seasons, but hopefully, in uh, you know, some interesting and new angles on that, but also to to get to hear some of this wonderful music of Telemann, of which we don't hear nearly enough. Thank you.